1: Hello and welcome to New Books of Public Policy. I am Timmy Troy, your host. And this week, the book is The Threat Matrix, The FBI at War in the Age of Global Terror by Garrett Graff. Garrett Graff is the editor of the Washingtonian Magazine and has done a tremendous job at publicizing his book. He seems to be all over the media here in Washington. And he's written a a fascinating look at the FBI and how the FBI may not be your grandfather's FBI. may be a very different organization from the one you envision in the movies. So with that intro, we will go ahead and have a conversation with Garrett Graff, author of The Threat Matrix. Hello. We have Garrett Graff on the line. Garrett's going to talk to us about his book, The Threat Matrix. Garrett, thanks for joining us.
0: My pleasure, Tevye.
1: Well... We are here to talk about the threat matrix subtitle is the FBI at war in the age of global terror. And the first thing I want to ask Garrett is who are you and um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh
0: I'm the editor of Washingtonian magazine here in DC. Uh this uh this book was a little bit of a departure from my normal background of writing about and covering technology and politics and globalization issues. But uh, I began covering the FBI in 2008, writing about it for Washingtonian for my day job. And as I got into those original pieces, what I discovered was that the FBI that existed in my mind, sort of the, the pop culture idea of the Hoover era FBI, turned out not to have as much to do with what the FBI actually was doing today. And and that sort of launched me onto this reporting project, which three years later has resulted in this book.
1: That's interesting, and that's something I want to talk about once we, we get started talking about the specifics of the book. But my broader question is, this is a almost 600-page book. You put out a serious monthly magazine. There's a lot of research that went into this book. How did you possibly do it? How did you manage it?
0: Well, one of the nice things about uh working at a monthly magazine is that there is some flexibility over the course of the month to do reporting uh out, outside of the office and and to sort of engage in some side projects like this. Um but for for me the the big challenge was of course the writing. Um and that was something that I um I'm just pretty disciplined about it and I get up and I write for two hours in the morning from about 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. every morning before I come into the office.
1: You know, when I was reading the acknowledgments, and I'm a huge reader of acknowledgments, I find them fascinating, <laughs> you have this tantalizing reference to the fact that you're already starting a, on another project, even though it your your wife suggested that you not get started yet?
0: Yeah, I uh, uh, she, she's uh, my girlfriend at this point, and she, um, she, she asked about uh, sort of towards the end of living with this book for three years, that maybe I should take a little time off before I start the next one. But um, I, I really enjoy the chance to dive into topics deeply like this and um, a, a, and to investigate something. And so I was, uh, um, I've sort of already begun the process of digging around uh, on the next book.
1: Is it too early for you to tell us what that might be?
0: Well, it, it, it's related to... Uh, to this one, it, it, it's it's an offshoot uh, of one of the things that I I sort of stayed really interested in, which is the current threats that the FBI is beginning to struggle with in terms of international organized crime and cybercrime, uh, which the bureau really sees as being its primary threats for the next decade. And I think if the last decade or the last two decades, depending on how you look at it, were the decades of counterterrorism in the United States, I think that the next decade coming up is going to be a decade about cybercrime.
1: I know there's a lot to worry about in that regard. Uh, A few moments ago, you said that what interested you in writing this was that the FBI of pop culture myth is not really the FBI that exists today. And one of the things you said in the book was that the founding myth of the FBI is actually a myth and didn't really happen. Can you tell that story? So this was uh,
0: the one of the things that, you know, J. Edgar Hoover deserves tremendous credit for um, is really his invention of the FBI. Uh, And, you know, he was the director of the FBI for, for about 48 years, this incredible span of U.S. history that begins three years before Charles Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic and ends three years after we land a man on the moon. I mean, fully a quarter of the entire history of the United States, Edgar Hoover was the head of the FBI. But when he took over the Bureau early on, um, it it was a real dumping ground of political uh, patronage and not... The, the agents didn't have a lot of power. They weren't allowed to make arrests. They weren't allowed to carry guns. They weren't really law enforcement officers. And so, Hoover in the early 30s was really looking for an incident where he could try to get the FBI to, uh, you know, expand its powers to combat, you know, the Bonnie and Clyde's and Machine Gun Kelly and sort of this rising threat of gangsters uh, in the early 30s. And uh, there was a case in the in Kansas City, actually, where two, uh, well, uh, I think it was actually a, a total, really, of four FBI agents and then a handful of Kansas City police were trying to arrest or, or, or re-arrest uh, a, a gangster. Uh, and bring him through union station in Kansas City uh on his way to Fort Leavenworth to the to the penitentiary there and they were ambushed by some of the gangsters uh companions um Frank Nash's companions and in the ensuing gunfight uh two of the FBI agents were killed and two of the um two of the Kansas City uh police officers were killed And Hoover used this to sort of show how ruthless and violent all of these gangsters were and that the FBI needed to be able to defend itself. It needed to be able to carry guns. It needed to be able to make arrests. Um, And and actually some really, really impressive investigative work um, by a Kansas City Star reporter years later, um, just about 15 years ago, uh, uncovered for the first time that it was actually – the FBI, one of the FBI agents at the scene, who who accidentally killed basically every one of the other lawmen at the scene, uh, and, and while Hoover knew that, that sort of didn't play well, uh, obviously, and and actually sort of argued against Hoover's point that the FBI needed to be able to defend itself, uh, and, and so Hoover created this legend right from the beginning uh, about the ruthlessness of. These gangsters that really it turns out has no real basis in history.
1: How do you kill everyone at the scene? Did he have a machine gun or something? Uh, he
0: had. A, he was working with an unfamiliar shotgun, which was sort of the first time he he had used this particular shotgun. Um, and the people in in the room or, or in the in the car with him uh, were were actually all killed um, by uh, by the shotgun. Um, unfortunately.
1: Uh, You you mentioned Hoover and he obviously was a very talented individual, but he also has a reputation of being a a relatively nasty individual. Mm -hmm. How big of an SOB was he? Uh, Well,
0: he, uh, a pretty big one, I think is, is the short answer Uh, (laughs) uh, that he, he really created and shaped the FBI in his vision and in his, uh, image, um, and was a tremendous micromanager. Uh, early on, he, his inclinations were remarkably progressive, actually, that he was really trying to turn this into a professional organization, trying to get it to adopt, uh, quote-unquote, modern law enforcement techniques. Uh, but but then the, the period that is more familiar, I think, to most people is his, his final years, where he really became a, a, a stick in the mud and was going after people like Martin Luther King jr. Um, you know, the college students protesting the Vietnam war, um, it, you know, that he refused to let blacks and women, uh, become agents. Uh, and there, there's sort of a, a, a funny story that, you know, that when women were sort of first admitted to the bureau, uh, as agents, uh, the bureau insisted that they keep the same height and weight requirements for men for the male agents they have for the female agents. So the first crop of female agents were basically all Amazons, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and that it was uh, that period, sort of the last decade or or so of Hoover's time, uh, I think, is a much less progressive and much darker time uh, for for Hoover and his, his vision. Um, but he he was. Uh, he was a pretty nasty boss uh, pretty early as he got older.
1: Yeah, but It's not just progressiveness or, or lack thereof. I, mean, I just read this book about Wild Bill Donovan and the founding of the OSS, which was the precursor to the, mm-hmm. the CIA. And Hoover was so threatened by Donovan that he wasn't above and beyond trying to arrest Donovan's agents when they tried to carry out some of their missions.
0: Oh, uh, well, there's that. There's also that Hoover... Uh, During World War II, the the British actually tried to encourage the U.S. government to not create the CIA and instead actually give those powers to the FBI for for foreign intelligence gathering as well. But Hoover thought that the agent that the British wanted to be in charge of that uh, was too fat to represent the FBI well and so he torpedoed the whole thing because he personally didn't like the agent uh, that the British wanted to to pick and, and so we sort of ended up with the CIA partially out of Hoover's peak
1: yeah, I suspect it may not have had to do with the corpulence of the individual but uh, Hoover's unwillingness to let go uh, you mm-hmm. you have a, a section in the book about Hoover's funeral in 1972 which was kind of a a, a huge deal um, but it, you seem to say that it's sort of the end of an era. And when the 1972 Olympics took place and there was the slaughter of the Israeli athletes, Nixon went to the FBI and said, well, what are our plans if something terrible like this happens? And the answer was none,
0: right? Yeah. And, and this was, for me, the the most interesting part of, of writing this book was I set out to write the story of the modern FBI. And what I found as I got into it was that, you know, the modern FBI didn't begin on 9-11 and that the story sort of kept taking me back further and further. And where I ended up beginning the book is in 1972, where you have um, what I argue is sort of the, the dawn of the modern era of the FBI through a combination of the death of J. Edgar Hoover in, in, on May 2nd, 1972, and then... Beyond that, uh, the Munich Olympics in the in the fall of, of 72 and also the hijacking of Southern Airways Flight 49, which is something completely lost to history now, but was the first violent hijacking of a U.S. commercial airliner. And that those events really sort of underscored this huge change that the FBI was going to have to undergo to combat the post-Hoover uh, era. Um, and, and it's hard to imagine this, you know, a decade after nine eleven when we can drop a team... Of Navy SEALs by helicopter into the into Abbottabad to kill Bin Laden, but in 1972 we didn't have any of this. You know, we didn't have SWAT teams, we didn't have hostage negotiators, we didn't have snipers. I mean, we were sending FBI agents out to take on hijackers with just their 38 caliber revolvers uh, as their sidearms
1: and that took place until 1990, right? You said the FBI was using six shooters through 1990 as their primary weapon.
0: Yeah. Um it, you know, and they began to develop SWAT teams by the end of the 1970s um and and uh, but they they kept that six shooter for a much longer period of time.
1: You also talk a little bit about the mafia focus that the FBI had and there were a couple of young hotshot prosecutors who, I guess, attained national fame later on, uh, Chertoff and, and Giuliani. Can you talk a little bit about that period?
0: Uh, again, sort of along the lines of, you know, terrorism didn't begin on on nine eleven. that these threats weren't new. Uh, uh, there was this core nucleus of these prosecutors, um, actually mostly um, from the era when Rudy Giuliani was the U.S. attorney in in Manhattan in the Southern District of New York, Uh, you know, a junior Louis Free, a junior Michael Chertoff, um, who began to do some of these big mafia investigations, um, for for Louis Free it was a case called the Pizza Connection, which was really the first international mafia prosecution the U S had ever undertaken, and for Michael Chertoff it was the case um, where he was trying the commission, sort of the leaders of all five families uh, of the the La Cosa Nostra in New York, and that these cases really actually end up laying a surprising amount of the groundwork for how we. Tackle international investigations and tackle terrorism cases, uh, e- even up until today. Um, and then, of course, by in the end of the 1980s, uh, there's a you know a Justice Department official named Robert Mueller uh, who is the, helping to oversee the prosecution and investigation of the uh, bombing of Pan Am 103 on December 21st, 1988. Uh, who you know gets sort of his first exposure to. Uh, big terrorism cases and and attacks on U.S. civilians Uh, in in that case, as well as working the prosecution of Manuel Noriega, uh, which was the first time that we'd ever actually used military force to go after a criminal defendant. Uh, And these cases, again, sort of begin to lay the groundwork for the legal framework of tackling terrorism uh, and tackling some of these big international investigations in the years after
1: 9-11. Yeah, you talk about the achille Loro pursuit or the pursuit of the terrorists in the achille Lauro and Lockerbie, as you mentioned, and it seems that FBI's role initially, at least in this regard, was kind of a law enforcement pursue someone after they've committed a crime. Is Is that how they were envisioned, and is that, do you think, how it's continued to be? That
0: the mission that changed dramatically after 9/11. Uh, uh, Robert Mueller, then um, the the FBI director um, uh, on on September 11th, uh, it was told by Attorney General Ashcroft and, and President Bush uh, on September 12th, you know, never let this happen again. And that Mueller ha- has talked about ever since this huge shift towards preventing the next attack. Uh, that has actually rattled a uh a lot of the agents who did work counter terrorism before 9/11 because their arguments were that they were always trying to prevent the next attack and the, the way that you prevent the next attack is by investigating the last attack and seeing how those people were able to operate undetected figuring out who the those perpetrators were what the support networks were uh and and rolling them up and arresting them as best you can um, the you know the FBI agents that uh, who, who worked this stuff before 9-11, they argue you know, the reason that you chase Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, is because when you arrest him, you are preventing his future attacks. So these are habitual offenders. These are habitual terrorists. They, they are going to continue attacking I- until uh, I- until they're stopped, until they're taken off the street one way or another. Uh, and, and for the uh, Bureau, while overall that mind shift ha- has, I think, Come a long way since 9/11. Um, I, I talk about in the book this this real tension that existed within the bureau of the agents who really felt that their hard work before 9/11 was tossed aside by Director Mueller uh, in the in the weeks and months after
1: 9/11. But Mueller. As you say, got a very clear direction from Ashcroft and Bush, but you also mentioned in the book that not long before 9/11, Ashcroft told some of his subordinates, "Don't talk to me about Al Qaeda ever again." What was going on there? Well, this is
0: the huge evolution that the U.S. underwent, uh, you know, in the period right after 9/11 on, on terrorism. That uh, up until 9/11, terrorism was put on an equal playing field with all of the other geopolitical threats, all of the other criminal threats that the U.S. W- was facing. And and so Ashcroft wasn't particularly interested in in counterterrorism issues before 9-11. Um, and actually one of those stories that I, I tell in the book was on September 10th, he actually denied the FBI's request for additional counterterrorism agents uh, and that he did not list in at the beginning of his term counterterrorism as one of his priorities. Um, and he was much more focused on, uh, civil rights, civil liberties, gun cases, drug cases, sort of things like that. And that, that was true really across the government. Um, you know, Steve call in his book, the ghost wars lays out how we really measured through the 1990s, uh, you know, in terms of Afghanistan and Pakistan, the, the danger of the nuclear threat from Pakistan when we were examining, uh, you know, sort of how to pressure Pakistan to deal with the terrorism in uh, in next door uh, in Afghanistan. And that it was really only beginning on the afternoon of 9-11 and, and then 9-12 on, onwards that we began to, Treat terrorism differently. That we began to say that this is this is the big threat. This is the thing that we are going to refocus the U.S. government to tackle.
1: You know the um, the the FBI, um, I guess, has uh, sharp elbows, and I guess you say that that stems from Hoover. But this continues to exist long after Hoover's demise. And uh, you you talk a little bit about the tension between the FBI and the New York Police Department. I remember Mm -hmm. reading a book about the New York Police Department that said that the only reason that the New York Police Department has an anti-terror task force is because they don't trust the feds to give them the information they need to prevent terror in New York City. Can you talk a little bit about that tension?
0: This is a tension that really goes back you know, 30-plus years um, and and led to actually the creation in the early 1980s of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, this hybrid uh, NYPD, hybrid uh, FBI task force uh, that tried to jointly investigate these cases and jointly prosecute them so that the FBI and the NYPD weren't really at loggerheads anymore. Since 9-11, that has undergone uh, an, an even bigger shift, where that JTTF, which did tremendous work through the 1990s uh, uh, on chasing al-Qaeda, the New York JTTF actually put together the first criminal prosecution of Osama bin Laden and, and most of the al-Qaeda network long before 9-11 um, The the first um, JTTF agents were assigned to begin chasing bin Laden actually in the spring of 1996, a full five years before 9-11, and that for the period after 9-11 that – NYPD really began to invest in its own intelligence and counterterrorism uh, networks uh including posting some of its own detectives overseas to to try to develop their own intelligence that tension uh you know ebbs and flows between the two organizations um and and I don't think realistically it will probably ever go away entirely it's something that uh you've seen even just in the last couple of months rear its head where Ray Kelly the NYPD commissioner was floated as a possible uh, new FBI director when Robert Mueller leaves office uh and was sort of very promptly uh, attacked and and I think shut down within the bureau uh because they they see the NYPD as uh so stubborn and and unhelpful in, in a lot of ways
1: another organization that the FBI has some tension with is the CIA and before 9/11, there was this famous wall. Some people called it the Gorillak Wall between CIA and, and FBI. Can you talk about how that wall came to be, and whether you think we've successfully taken down that wall after
0: 9/11? The the wall was originally meant. Uh, it, was, it was sort of a, it was a Chinese wall, as, as people uh, referred to it, that dealt with that was meant to protect people from being prosecuted by intelligence information, I mean, sort of uh, wiretaps or or whatever by the CIA, and that that information um, from the CIA or the NSA had a very high bar for how it could be used in a criminal investigation and a criminal prosecution. And it, it was sort of one of those weird bureaucratic things where the way that it ended up being implemented was not in any way indicative of what the original intent of the wall was. Um, the original wall was meant to be a relatively specific prohibition on a, in a relatively specific set of circumstances. And over time, as sort of every single person who interpreted it, interpreted it a little bit more cautiously than the person before, it eventually became this like hard and fast rule that the CIA and the FBI couldn't talk to one another. Now, the 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 truth of the matter is that that was, for a lot of intelligence agencies in the U.S. government, a convenient excuse to not share information with the FBI, a, a way for them to sort of protect their uh, so-called sources and methods. So it it was a wall that for a lot of people, there wasn't much inclination to try to get around, to try to work around and try to share that information anyway. And so this becomes a major sticking point in the summer of 2001 and I, I think actually leads to the biggest miss, missed opportunity for the FBI to prevent the 9/11 attacks where the CIA actually knew that two known al-Qaeda operatives were within the United States in June of 2001 and that those uh and that was information that was knowledge that was never passed to the FBI. And that those two men, of course, went on to become two of the 9-11 hijackers. And when you talk to the agents who were involved in that case, they say, you know, if you had given us a hundred day head start on knowing that Al Qaeda was planning an attack, uh, you know, we might have been able to do something to prohibit or to, to prevent it.
1: You know, I've heard this story before, and it never fails to both flabbergast and infuriate me. But my question is this. The CIA knew about these operatives. Were they doing anything to try and track them down, or they just said, we're not telling the FBI, and we're not going to do anything about it ourselves? So this is
0: uh, this is actually still very much an, an active part of debate. Um, the CIA was not particularly actively chasing them. Um, one, one of the theories, which I, I don't really get into in, in the book, Um, but I did hear from a number of of people on the FBI side is that their theory is that the FBI, uh, that the CIA did not share this information because the CIA was hoping to turn one or both of these Al Qaeda operatives to become informants, that the CIA was sort of hoping to use this information, uh, to their own advantage because, Uh, Of course, the big challenge the U.S. government had before 9-11 was that we didn't have any sources within Al-Qaeda. We didn't have a single human source within Al-Qaeda when the 9-11 attacks were planned and executed, and that the FBI's theory, unofficially, is that the CIA partially withheld this information because of the wall and partially withheld this information because they were hoping to be able to reach these Al-Qaeda operatives and, and turn them and make them informants themselves.
1: But were they doing anything to make that happen? Were they pursuing them in any way to find them and, and turn them?
0: Well, and, and, and that's that's the hole in the information that we really have right now, um, is that it does not appear that they were, um, but that they knew that these people were here. Um, and, and the theory being that if the CIA knew they sh- they should have been trying to track these people down, and that maybe the reason that we don't know more about this time period was that they were trying to track them down and were unsuccessful uh, in either uh, reaching them or turning them.
1: The, the sense of the what you know and what you don't know and what Rumsfeld called the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns mm-hmm. – w- leads me to ask a question about your sources in coming up with this book. How did you get classified information or did you get classified information does WikiLeaks help in something like this what, what how are you pursuing the information you needed?
0: One of the advantages that I had in reporting this is that the FBI of course is geared towards criminal prosecution. So for a lot of these cases there are publicly available court records, uh, you know, government exhibits, wallet taps, Things like that that were, were really helpful. Um, I FOIA'd a, a good number of documents, you know, made Freedom of Information Act requests, um, and actually ran into some stumbling blocks with dealing with the FBI on that matter. Um, that uh, are is the subject still of a ongoing lawsuit um, over um, my interpretation of the FOIA law and the FBI's interpretation of the FOIA law. Um but the bulk of the book is actually based on um I interviewed about hundred and eighty people for the book, about a thousand hours of interviews total.
1: Um
0: a lot of people with the FBI current and former agents and executives, as well as a lot of people across the rest of um you know, the NYPD, the Homeland Security, the State Department, the Department of Defense, the CIA, um and and of course uh you know all sorts of people from other foreign governments uh, and the National Security Council and assorted presidential administrations uh, and the Department of Justice and, and all of that stuff. Uh, and so much of what I was able to get for this book comes from those interviews. And it, and in many cases I was able to fill in some I think important holes in the way that some of these cases were were developed and pursued. Uh, because there is now a little bit of distance uh, between, you know, these cases that they are not, um, you know, in, in many cases, they have been adjudicated. Uh, and in in other cases, that there's just enough water under the bridge where people are able to talk more freely than they would be able to uh, if these operations were still ongoing.
1: Talking about ongoing stuff, uh, since you wrote your book, U.S. government managed to find and kill Osama bin Laden. Can you talk about the FBI role in making that happen? And were there any FBI people on the... It seems like it was a pretty large cast of people who went on the helicopter along with the SEAL Team 6. Do you know if there was an FBI role there? Uh,
0: There was... uh, The FBI had, I think, important roles uh, before and after the, the raid. I am not aware... Uh, right now of a specific FBI role in the raid itself, um, which doesn't mean that there wasn't one. It's just it's not something that has come out yet. Um, I, the FBI was involved in training the SEAL team that conducted the raid to uh, on sort of how to process the scene, how to collect evidence, how to gather uh you know, the hard drives and the thumb drives and the papers and sort of all of that, so, you know, so-called mother load of information that was swept up in the raid and they've been very involved in uh, the FBI uh, lab and computer teams uh, at, at Quantico, Virginia have been involved in processing uh, and decoding and, and, and trying to analyze a lot of that information that since has come back from the raid. Um, The training on the gathering of forensic evidence uh, has been something that the FBI has actually been involved in since the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan right in the wake of 9-11. And this has been one of the main roles that the FBI has had in the combat zones in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, over the last decade is helping the military to understand how to treat the scenes of raids as potential crime scenes effectively, um, so that you know you know that you know you want those hard drives, you know that you want those papers, um, what the FBI sort of calls pocket litter um, you know you you want to know you know what was in whose pocket uh, you know in terms of receipts in terms of credit cards, in terms of all of the information that could help determine links between people that could help determine future plots or future attacks uh, or, or support networks. Um, and that in Afghanistan and in Iraq and and in training for an operation like this, the FBI has been uh, really involved with military units in helping them understand how to gather that information, process that information, uh, and then analyze that information after a successful
1: raid. On this notion of the mother load of information that you mentioned, how much of a mother load was it from your sense of it and from your sources, and second, why did the u s government say they had a mother load? Why didn't they just say, "Oh, we didn't get anything and then leave the al Qaeda people guessing
0: uh, that is i I think becoming a more frequent uh sort of Monday morning quarterbacking uh of uh the attack that maybe we have put out too many details about some of the operations uh and, and some of the results of the operations. Uh, after uh, after the Bin Laden raid, um, f- from what I can tell so far, uh, and and I you know uh, I think like every other reporter don't haven't actually seen any of the documents that have come out of this raid myself, um, that it, it was actually a surprisingly large amount of information um, and surprisingly useful, and I think has reshaped some of our views of Al Qaeda since there was a Um, a a well-believed theory that bin Laden was not that involved in actually planning and executing uh, al-Qaeda attacks, that he wasn't that engaged in the day-to-day operations of al-Qaeda anymore. And it turns out, based on the information that has come out, that he was, in fact, much more engaged in in the operations of of al-Qaeda than than we had realized. Uh,
1: One other thing I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned... uh, fbi director muller and he is i guess now the second longest serving fbi director af- after hoover and there was a lot of talk about a possible Mueller succession i know some of the people we've mentioned in this interview were mentioned as possible successors, including jamie Grelick. what do you think is going on there are they do they have a long-term plan in the obama administration for replacing muller and what are they looking for
0: muller is as you said the the longest-serving FBI director now since Hoover himself. Uh, after Hoover's death, the, the Congress put into place this 10-year term limit on the FBI director. Uh, and of the five directors since Mueller, none of them had actually come close to meeting that 10-year limit. So Mueller was on track to become the first director uh, in September of 2011 to actually reach the end of his term. Now, one of the things that Uh, We've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks that was surprising to a lot of people uh, was President Obama has asked Congress to extend Mueller's term uh, by special act of Congress for two years to let him serve out uh, sort of the end of this era um, over the next two years and and before they replace him. There are a number of different factors that went into this. Um, I I think that it was the decision to extend his term, um, which is unprecedented in the history of the Bureau, is, uh, I think, an equal part of vote of confidence in Mueller and his leadership since 9-11, as well as a vote against the pool of successors as they exist today. I think if there was someone that it really made sense to replace Mueller, then this would be something that uh, you know, they'd be more willing to do right now. Um, but one of the things that has evolved under Mueller's leadership over the last decade is that the FBI has become a very different organization. Um, the traditional model for an FBI director is that it's either a former federal prosecutor or a former federal judge or both. And uh, Mueller is, of course, a a former federal prosecutor himself. And now, though, you know, the FBI is this sprawling global operation. They've got agents in about 80 countries overseas. They're engaged in Iraq. They're engaged in Afghanistan. They're doing, uh, they're combating pirates in Somalia. They're doing organized crime cases in Thailand. They're doing guns and drugs in South America. But there's a real sort of geopolitical aspect to it, that it's a it's a big intelligence operation now, um, you know, thousands of analysts, thousands of agents focused on counterterrorism and counterintelligence. It, it's a huge budget. It's a it's an organization with about 34,000 employees. Uh, it has an annual budget that would equate it with uh, eBay, a Fortune 300 company. Uh, you know, it's larger than Campbell Soup. It's larger than Visa. Uh, and that the FBI is not sort of an easy-to-manage organization now, and it's not solely focused on law enforcement anymore. So I think one of the things that has come out of the Obama administration's discussions in the last couple of months on replacing Mueller is the recognition that maybe there should be a new model for who an FBI director is, and that maybe that model uh, relies more on someone who have that counterterrorism and intelligence background, or maybe that model should be someone who's more of a chief executive. I mean, maybe you want sort of a Jack Welsh type to be the, the director of the FBI. And that I think what you're going to see over the next two years is a more focused succession plan for Mueller. Uh, I think it's possible you'll even sort of see someone vaguely publicly groomed to be the next FBI director.
1: Any predictions you want to make on this podcast? Well, I think
0: one of the I- interesting figures um, is uh, I think it's possible that uh, Lisa Monaco uh, could be a, a, a contender to be the next FBI director, which of course would be a uh, you know the first female director in the history of the FBI. Um, Lisa Monaco was um, Bob Mueller's chief of staff. She's a federal prosecutor. She was one of the prosecutors on the Enron Task Force, very well respected within the FBI and the Department of Justice. Uh, She spent the last two years um, as an associate deputy attorney general, and she is uh, currently um, the nominee for the assistant attorney general for national security in the Department of Justice. Uh, Sort of a very high-profile post that puts her really at the fore of U.S. counterterrorism uh, and national security policy.
1: Well, folks, you've heard it here first, the prediction of Lisa Monaco as possible FBI director. Garrett, you've been very generous with your time, and we have time for one last question, which is our signature question here on New Books and Public Policy. The question is, what policy change would you recommend based on what you've learned in doing this book?
0: The thing that I'm actually... Uh, most troubled by as I finish uh, my research with the FBI is I think we have actually under-invested in the FBI since 9-11. Um, we've asked them to take on some huge new tasks, counterterrorism, of course, being the top of that pile uh, since 9-11, uh, without giving them actually that many new resources. Um, and I think you have seen uh, a huge atrophy of FBI's traditional strengths in criminal investigations. White collar fraud, violent crime, uh, bank robberies, uh, guns and drugs, um, civil rights prosecutions, sort of all of these things that the FBI has sort of done traditionally. Uh, In most cases uh, since 9 11, you're seeing now prosecutions in those areas down 40, 50, 60 percent. Um, and I think, as you see more federal and state governments cutting back on their investments in state and local law enforcement uh, we 're going to at some point in the next couple of years realize that the FBI needs a lot more agents dedicated to traditional criminal investigations uh in, in order to sort of help keep cities safe and help uh you know keep American uh, pounds safe. There are a lot of crimes where the FBI is the only organization that investigates and prosecutes those crimes, and uh, frankly, now they don't have the resources to prosecute a lot of those uh, violations anymore.
1: It sounds like you have a healthy recognition of some of the FBI's flaws, but overall, you're a big fan of the organization and wish it great success, as do we all. Garrett Graf. The book is The Threat Matrix, The FBI at War in the Age of Global Terror. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Public Policy. It's been a real pleasure. That was a really interesting interview with Garrett Graff, the author of The Threat Matrix, The FBI at War in the Age of Global Terror. Graff, the editor of the Washingtonian magazine, somehow managed to find time away from his busy day job write a lengthy, well-researched and very interesting and very readable book about the FBI and what the FBI looks like today. I think you would all benefit from reading the book, and I hope you join us next week on New Books in Public Policy. I am Tevi Troy, and until then, keep reading.